often we look through our hymnal, and I think sometimes because there have been periods in the church where we haven't sung some of these psalms or ideas from the psalms, we've missed some of the important truths about God and who he is. We forget that God is a God who has wrath against sin. God is a God who judges his enemies. God is a God who accomplishes his plan sovereignly throughout history. And so I think that it is helpful for us both to look at the Old Testament and the ideas of the Old Testament to realize that the God who was God then is the same God who's God now. And I think we'll certainly see that in the passage that we'll look at this morning. If you ever asked someone for something repeatedly, perhaps for a long period of time, and then suddenly they say yes, you're surprised by it. You're, you sort of are caught off guard. You've expected the answer is going to be no, perhaps because it's been no before, perhaps because you just don't think it's possible, and all of a sudden you realize they said yes. I don't have to, I don't have to keep pleading. I don't have to keep coming up with this argument to persuade them. They said yes. Sometimes I think that the reason that we are surprised in those sorts of circumstances has to do with our view of the character and the ability of the person that we're asking for whatever that thing is, whether it be uh, something at work, whether it be something as a kid you really want to do with your parents, go somewhere, do something, whatever it is, sometimes we are surprised more because we're not really sure that that person can do the thing that we're asking them to do. I think we see in Acts chapter 12 a conflict between two kings. You have Herod the king, and then you have God, who is the king of kings. And there's this question in the passage of who is greater, whose will is going to prevail, and I think the surprise that we see in the middle of the chapter has to do to some extent with the confidence of the people who are praying for Peter's deliverance and their assessment of who has the greater power, who has the greater authority in this specific situation. Just to give some background, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. The about that time has to do with the circumstance of Peter's report to Jerusalem about the ministry to the Gentiles that we looked at two weeks ago at the beginning of Acts 11, and also with some of the things that happened in the church at the end of Acts 11, which we'll actually look at tonight because they lead in well to next Sunday's uh, uh, message uh, looking at Acts chapter 13 and the, mi the first missionary journey. So that's the time period. Herod the king laid hands on those who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Why would he do this? Well, this Herod is not the same Herod who was opposing Christ as a baby. That would have been his grandfather. And we know from historical records that that Herod um, had actually put to death this Herod's father because he was concerned he was going to try to overthrow him, usurp him in some way. This Herod had been in Rome for a time, had cultivated friendships with the Romans, and so he owed much of his authority and much of his position to the Romans. Changes in the leadership of Rome in terms of the, uh, who was Caesar, who was the emperor, and the fact that he's now ruling a broad swath of the Jews, uh, as much if not even slightly larger than his grandfather before him, meant that 
He had to watch himself. He had to make sure to cultivate favor with the Jewish people. And part of the way that he thought he could do that would be to go against the church. Now, certainly we see a, a period of peace in the church for some time, certainly uh, earlier in, um, uh, in the book of Acts. We see this sort of calm between uh, Saul's persecution of the church and this new persecution of the church. But certainly there is still opposition. Some think that perhaps this opposition was connected to the fact that Gentiles are seen as part of the church, and this was a point of contention for the Jews. What do we have to do with Gentiles? What, what good is it to associate with them? We should go back to the old ways. Perhaps there's something of that. Perhaps some of it is just simply the opposition to the gospel. They don't want to be reminded again of their role in crucifying Christ. But whatever the reason, Herod says this will be effective in securing their favor. So what does he do? He lays hands on some, he has James, the brother of John, verse 2, put to death with a sword. We're going to see another James later in this chapter. But the James that we see later in the chapter is not the same James. It's not as though he's raised from the dead and we see him at the end of the chapter. There are two Jameses here. One is James the apostle that Jesus called to follow as one of his disciples. The other is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who becomes a leader in the church at Jerusalem, at least by Acts 15. This James is James the apostle. Herod puts him to death. Verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That was during the days of unleavened bread. And so it's, it's fascinating that we have here um, a Herod who uh, is doing the same sorts of things that his grandfather did. He's opposing God's work. He's seeking to please the Jewish people. And he's doing so by opposing God's plan. So he arrests Peter. It says when he seized him, verse 4, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Does this ring any bells? Any parallels to a God-denying sort of ruler arresting someone around the time of Passover, intending to put him on trial? I mean, certainly in the life of Christ, we see parallels that Peter is going through the same sort of experience. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now what I said at the beginning, I don't mean in any way to deny that they were praying fervently. They certainly were. And yet by their response that we'll see later in the chapter, there still seems to be a little bit of an expectation that pray as we might, Herod's going to prevail. Perhaps because of what they observed with Christ, perhaps because uh, they're discouraged in some way because of the circumstances of this persecution. Verse 4, I think, is another important point to note. Herod delivers him to four squads of soldiers. They don't want Peter to get out. They want to make sure there is no possibility that a soldier falls asleep, that Peter has some opportunity to escape if the early church was even so bold as to break him out of prison or something along those lines. Herod did not want that to take place. On the very night, verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and light shone in the cell. Again, we see this in the Gospels. Light shines, Luke 2, we saw it last week, and the angels announce God's message to the shepherds. 
The angel appeared to Mary. The angel appeared to Joseph. Here, the angel appears to Peter. And Peter is apparently sleeping so soundly that it says in verse 7, he struck Peter's side and woke him up. So the light in the cell was not enough. I don't know, those of you who have, who have kids, sometimes you go in the room, you turn the light on, they're just so out of it that even the light getting turned on doesn't wake them up. You've got to sort of shake them awake uh, because it's time for school or for going somewhere or something along those lines. And Peter is apparently sleeping very soundly. You say, why would Peter be sleeping so soundly? Because he had confidence either that God would deliver him or that his time had come. And either way, he wasn't staying up all night. He wasn't fretting about it. He wasn't worried about it. He was resting because either way, he wanted to be prepared for what happened next. The angel says, get up quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. So, guarded by four squads of soldiers, chains on his hands. We'll see a similar circumstance uh, later on when Paul is chained to Roman soldiers and uses it as an opportunity to give the gospel to him because they look at it as he's their captive and he looks at it as they're my captive and I'm going to share the truth with them. But the simple fact here, Peter is chained between two soldiers bound with two chains. And the angel said, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. And so there's this interesting progression of, it's sort of like, okay, wake up. And Peter wakes up, and he's just sort of still there. All right, get dressed. So he gets dressed. Put your shoes on. All right, now let's go. It's almost as though the angel is sort of dragging him through and stepping him through each portion of the process. And why? Because Peter feels as though he's in a vision. Verse 9, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Picture this scene. You're chained to two guards. It's your last night on earth, humanly speaking. Suddenly an angel appears and light shines and he says, get up. And you sort of go through all these motions and you find yourself in the street outside the prison. You say, I don't have chains on my hands. We got past the guards. The door opened by itself. This wasn't just a dream. So what is the natural response? God did it. Praise God. And notice the way that, that Luke presents this language. Now I know for sure the Lord has sent forth his angel. He sees it as the hand of God and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. There's parallels in this for me, I think, from what we see with um, uh, this recognition of God's sovereignty and what's taking place. Peter spoke of that himself in his sermon back in Acts 2. Peter and John were in prison in Acts 5 and had a very similar circumstance. Uh, turn, turn back there, if you would, to Acts chapter 5. Verses 17 through 21. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates 
the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. What's the report about the prison? Verse 23, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. So this is not the first time that this has happened to Peter. And what response can he have except to say, praise God, he's delivered me again. I didn't expect it necessarily, but God has done it. The expectation of the people, the expectation of Herod, we will prevail. God's message will be silenced. We will crush this way that is being promoted by those who have betrayed the, the Jewish faith or those who are going to cause, in Herod's case, complications to my relationship with Rome. We're going to stamp them out, take care of this problem, and we'll be done with it. And instead, their plans are thwarted by God's purpose. We're going to see an angel, the word angel, three times in this passage. The second one is in the next section. When he realized this, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. So Peter goes to where the believers are gathered. This is the house of Mary, the mother of John, called Mark. And so clearly not everyone got rid of all their houses back in the early chapters of Acts, but there's still places where believers are gathered. And what are they gathered for? They're gathered to pray, I think, about the persecution and specifically for Peter's deliverance. So he knocks at the gate. The servant girl comes out. She recognizes Peter's voice. She's so overcome by joy that she forgets to open the gate, and she runs inside and tells them, Peter's alive. Again, think about the parallels. I'm not saying that Peter is in any way Jesus, but think about the parallels that Luke is highlighting. The women come to the tomb. Jesus is not here. They go and tell him. Do they believe them? The women? Not first. They have to go and see for themselves. Same sort of thing is going place here. And they don't even believe her necessarily in verse 15. They start out by saying, you are out of your mind. Which is a fascinating response given the fact of the very thing that they are doing. What are they doing? They're saying, God, deliver Peter. Servant girl runs into the room. God has delivered Peter. You're crazy. But that is so often our response because... Whether we recognize it or not, we have this sense that the authority that is right in front of our eyes is more powerful than the authority who is above all other authorities. And that's the sense that we see here. They, they're crying out to God. They know that God could answer. We see a testament of faith back at the end of um, Acts chapter 4. Uh, they said that, uh, truly they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur and now Lord take note of their threats and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place where they had gathered together was shaken 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And so this was the testimony of the early church, but it seems that they lost some of that confidence in God that they had, perhaps because they've come through several waves of persecution, perhaps because it seems like the Jews and Herod are, are going to prevail against them. Whatever the reasons, it doesn't seem that they have quite the same level of confidence that they did in Acts chapter 4. Certainly this happened for the children of Israel, right? God parts the Red Sea, leads them out in the wilderness, destroys Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. They come to a spot where they're running low on food and water, and they say, we're going to die in the wilderness. Why would you bring us out here, Moses? And it's so easy for us to forget God's work, even that which happened not long before, not more than a decade prior, all of these things had taken place, perhaps even less than that, and yet they had forgotten to some extent the work of God, and they're praying, but there's a measure of lack of confidence in their prayer. And this is a rebuke to me because there's a lot of times when we pray, and we pray because we know that we're supposed to do it, but we don't pray expecting that God's going to actually answer the prayer because we've lost confidence in God and who He is. Or we think that this circumstance is too big for God to handle. Or we think that this person is the, the threat that's right in front of our eyes and we forget the one who's over all things. So their first response is, you're crazy. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. Now, what do they mean by this? Uh, there's one other allusion to this in the Gospels in Matthew 18. Jesus says something about the, uh, don't do anything toward these little children because of their angels in heaven before my father. And some people have taken from these few references and built sort of an elaborate theology of, of guardian angels and that sort of thing. And that's neither here nor there for purposes of this passage. They are saying simply this. Either you're crazy or Peter's died and you've seen some sort of vision connected with his death. That seems to be the basic emphasis of this passage. Either one of those possibilities excludes the reality, which is he's physically alive, he's not dead, he's standing at the gate, we need to let him in. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Again, you're crazy? Peter's died and you're having some sort of vision, either an angel has appeared or... Um, something connected with his death, sort of a sign of his death, perhaps some sort of superstition. Either way, he's not here. They open the gate, he's actually there, and they're amazed, even though that's the thing that they've just been praying for. What does Peter say in verse 17? But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and to the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. He gives testimony to the fact that God delivered him. And I think this is important for us to remember as well, because sometimes God answers our prayers, and we forget to give him thanks. We forget to give testimony of what it is that he's done. We pray and we pray and we pray, and someone gets saved after 10 years, or God answers some seemingly impossible obstacle, takes it away, uh, gives us uh, help in the midst of it. And we immediately turn to the next thing that we're asking God for. Do we pause and give praise to God, give testimony of what it is that he has done? Not only that, but Peter wanted to make sure that 
the others who were connected with the church in Jerusalem knew what had taken place. And so that's why he says, report it to James and the brethren. As I said a few moments ago, James will become the leader of the church at Jerusalem by Acts 15. Then Peter leaves and goes to another place. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would hold that he then goes to Rome and becomes the leader of the church there. However, uh, it does not seem to be any clear biblical testimony along those lines. And some would argue from Paul's letter to the Romans that it doesn't seem that he necessarily went to Rome. Regardless, all it says is he left and went to another place. Why? I think even though he recognized that God could and did and had delivered him, he was not going to remain in Jerusalem and draw unnecessary attention and Herod's wrath by remaining in that place. Instead, he was going to go to another place. This would be similar to what we'll see later in the ministry of Paul when he faces persecution in a particular city. And he leaves not to abandon the church that has been established, but knowing that he's the primary focus of the opposition. And so when he leaves, then that will sort of uh, allow the situation to calm down and, and, and reduce the persecution to some degree on those who remain. What's the response of the authorities? Verse 18, Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. You have to love the way that Luke puts this. There was no small disturbance. They had no idea what had happened. Where was Peter? And for the second time. It's interesting to see that Herod has rather a different response than the religious authorities working with his grandfather Herod and Pilate and all of them had at the end of Matthew with regards to the disappearance of Jesus' body. They were supposed to be guarding the tomb. The penalty for not guarding your prisoner or your post properly was supposed to be death. At the end of Matthew, they pay him off with a large sum of money. Herod is certainly not willing to go to that extent. He wants this to be stamped out. He wants to make an example of them. So verse 19, when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away with implication to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. So we see parallels between what had happened in Acts 5 and God's deliverance here. We see parallels between the way that God worked in the life of ministry of Christ and sort of a, a repeating of some of those same elements. And I think Luke is structuring the story in that sort of way on purpose because he wants to highlight those things. God's sovereignty versus man's opposition, God's power to deliver versus chains, prison doors, guards, and so forth. But we come to the end of the chapter, and we see something that seems to have nothing to do with what we've just looked at. And yet I think it has everything to do with what we've just looked at. Now he, that is Herod, verse 20, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord... They came to him, and having won over Blastus the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. Herod rules a large swath of the nation of Israel, and the supplies that were needed for Tyre and Sidon on the coast were dependent upon his goodwill, and so they're trying to secure that. Quite possibly they bribed the chamberlain to get an audience with the king. Uh, the reason for Herod's anger, we don't know. Was it frustration because of what had happened with Peter? 
Was it some other unrest that was happening in this territory that he's in a precarious position trying to hold? We don't know all those things, but the simple facts are laid out here. He's angry with the people. They're seeking to secure peace because it's a, a basic necessity for them. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, the place where he would address the people, and began delivering an address to them. Josephus, the Jewish historian who is more creative than he is historically accurate, also tells these sorts of, describes this circumstance, and his account matches up very closely with what we see here in the book of Acts, and gives some additional details, but essentially this is an actual thing that took place. Herod is seated, giving an address to the people, a speech to them, possibly because he was the sort of person who liked to hear himself speak, possibly because he knew that the people are not going to say anything against whatever he says because they need him in order to survive. That's what verse 20 makes clear. And what's the response of the people? We want this guy to like us. Verse 22, the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Let's flatter him. Let's say whatever we have to say to get what we want from Herod. What does God think about this? Verse 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. So this is the third time that we see an angel, or the word angel. The angel of the Lord delivers Peter. The people think that Rhoda has seen an angel of the Lord. And now the angel of the Lord comes and strikes Herod. We could make several observations from this. One would be, that God's angels work on behalf of his people and in opposition to his enemies. That God's power is such that he doesn't even have to come himself. He can send one of his messengers, a mere created being, and say, here's what's going to happen. Give them authority to do it. They do it and it happens. We sort of have this idea that here's Herod and here's God, but it's more like here's God, here's an angel who though great and powerful, is far less important than God. And here's Herod, and it's more like these two are like this or even like this. Herod's pride, his expectation that he can thwart God's plan, his security in his own success as a ruler of the people, leads to his death when he was seeking the death of those who serve God and proclaim the gospel, his pride leads him to his own death, and the people of God see that God is God, that God can overcome prison walls and chains and guards, that God can defeat even the ruler of the entire region in which this was taking place, and when he sins, God can strike him down in an instant. Why do, how do we know that this is part of the point that Luke's trying to make? Verse 24, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Herod dies, God's word prevails. Peter is in prison, God delivers him, he goes off to minister in another place, and the word of the Lord continues to spread. So it's not dependent on Peter, it's not dependent on a specific place, it's not dependent on the goodwill of the kings and the rulers and the authority, God's will would prevail. Why? Because in Acts 1.8, the 
the Holy Spirit, God said that the Holy Spirit would cause the carrying out of God's word to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And try as they might, the kings of the earth could scheme against that and try to stop it, whether it be Herod, whether it be the religious leaders in a particular city, whether it be even Caesar himself, try to stamp it out and the gospel would go forth. Because that was God's purpose and that was God's will. And so going back to what we thought about at the beginning. When you ask someone for something and they say yes, are you surprised by the yes? I think the people in the middle of this chapter were surprised by the yes because to a certain extent they had started to forget the events of the early chapters of Acts. Time had gone on, persecution had continued, all of these sorts of factors had taken place and they had to some degree lost confidence in God and in his ability to do what he was more than capable of doing. Is this chapter a guarantee that God will always answer every prayer with a yes? No. But to the extent that what we are doing is in line with the spread of the gospel and God's working out his purpose in the church, can we pray with confidence? Yes. Should we pray with confidence? Yes. And I think we recognize, even as Peter did, and I think this is the thing that gave him the ability to sleep on the night before, or the night before he was supposed to be executed, and that is, the gospel is not dependent on any one of us. Should we fervently and diligently take it and live it out? Yes. But the gospel can go on without me, without any one of you, which does not minimize our contribution to the work of God, but it simply says that what God is doing is bigger than just one individual person, one individual church, or even just the churches in the United States, or even just the churches in North America. God is working throughout the whole world, accomplishing his purpose, accomplishing his plan. And I think Luke wants us to see that, that God is making sure that the gospel continues to go forward. And much in the vein of Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? For us, that seems like such a big obstacle. For God, it's like when the wave comes and washes away your sandcastle. It's almost, it's almost indifferent in the amount of effort put forth by the wave versus the amount of effort you put into building the sandcastle. We look at all of these things as being huge obstacles, and to God there is nothing. So what then should we do? When we have needs, cry out to God, expecting that he can and will answer us, not always with a yes, but certainly with the expectation that he has the power to do so, particularly in connection with the spreading of his word. And so as we go into the new year with connect, in connection with these things, do we believe that God can save people that we have been giving the gospel to? Some of them, you've been giving the gospel to them for years. Some of them, it seems like that's the furthest thing from their minds. If God saved you, if God delivered Peter, if the early church spread, 
don't give up. Recognize God's sovereignty, even if it's not about the opposition of specific people. And we talked about this in the Sunday School Hour. When a psalm says, here's my enemy, it's usually talking about a physical enemy. But sometimes there are circumstances in life that create obstacles for God's people. And I would encourage you in the midst of those obstacles not to lose confidence in God and his ability to help and in his ability to use even those circumstances to spread the gospel to the people around you. So as we look at the entirety here of chapter 12, Herod, God's word. Which one prevailed? God's word prevailed. And here we see the unity in the Bible. That's the message of First and Second Kings. It's the message of what Luke is saying right here. God's word will prevail. The gospel will go forward. God has more than enough power to answer even what seems to be an unlikely or an unexpected request. Do we confidently rest in God? Do we pray with faith? Do we look to see what God will do next in and through our lives? And do we see this as part of the broader thing that God is doing in the world as a whole, that we are one small part of the puzzle, but that the entirety of God's plan and purpose fits together so that when we come to something like the book of Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation are standing there giving praise to God, and some of them will be there because we were faithful in our church to the same task that Peter and the early church were involved in. Let's close with prayer. Lord, when we look at Peter going to prison and uh, Herod seeming to prevail against him, and all these other little details in this story, it's easy for us to look around us at the circumstances of our lives and feel like we're perhaps in a similar situation that we've tried to follow you, that we've prayed about things, but we're not sure what the outcome is going to be. We know that we should believe that you are capable of answering our prayers and causing your word to go forth and giving us the opportunity to testify about you, but it seems like a distant hope sometimes, Lord. I pray that you might renew our spirits, that you might help us to have confidence in you according to this uh, small excerpt from what happened in the life of the early church, that we would see that your plan and your purpose will be accomplished, that we will see that you are far greater than any human authority, that we will see that you hear and answer prayers, that we will rejoice in what you do in and through us. Lord, we pray that you would help us keep these things in mind even this week, that we will look for those opportunities to testify about you to people around us, that we will look back over this year and see your hand in it and anticipate your hand in the new year, 
And we just pray that you will be honored by all these things. In Christ's name, amen.